Good morning. And welcome to those of you who are uh, streaming. And if you are streaming and you are within half an hour's drive of this place, if you get in your car right now, <laughs> you can make it in time for the lunch that will follow Ordinary Life today. It's our annual fall luncheon. It's free. So after class today, if those of you who are present would just step out into the Mar Gallery for a few minutes or in the hall while they quickly reconfigure this room, uh, then we'll have food together. And when we do eat, would you try to sit with people you don't know? And then ask them embarrassing questions <laughs> so that you can get to know them better. That would, be, that would be fun. That's one of the reasons that we do this. We had a great uh, happy hour on Friday night. We had three magicians present, right? So uh, if you missed the magic, there was. Yeah, you just had to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> but it was there. Okay. All right, I'm glad you're here. And... Um, Lauren and Jason. Um, Josh. What? Josh. Josh, I mean. I'm sorry. Josh and John and, and Tim, the people who make it possible for you to watch it streaming. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So let's begin in silence as we do. Just. Do what you need to do to be here and to get grounded. Maybe take a deep breath. <clears throat> I think this is the last Sunday I'll do this uh, one. I um, have adapted this particular uh, prayer from a Gothic hymn that our St. Paul's Choir did as an anthem some um, time ago, and it goes, um, Grace be in my head and in my thinking. Grace be in my eyes and in my seeing. Grace be in my ears and in my hearing. Grace be in my mouth and in my speaking. Grace be in my heart and in my understanding and grace be in my end and at my departing, which is not a depressing thought. So um, I'm grateful that you are here. I hope you find what you came looking for. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. So I want to begin by asking a question, and I'm very, very serious about this, by a show of hands. There, there, it is said that the teacher of this class frequently uses a phrase. Something about a daily spiritual Something practice. about a daily spiritual yeah. practice. There are other phrases you frequently use, too. And this is the, the question I really want to know the answer to. How many of you think that you have a good understanding of what having a daily spiritual practice is? Would you hold up your hand? Almost everybody. If it's five out of seven days of the week, that's also okay. That's not daily. 
everybody needs a rest. Okay. All right. So I just was taking a poll, wanted to know. I was thinking about even offering a class about having a daily spiritual practice. Yes? But I thought everybody held up their hand. <laughs> we do it. We just don't understand it. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, that may be what we do next week. All right. So uh, I want to begin today by saying uh, this. Um, several years ago, 2008 to be exact, that's 14 years ago, there was a book published that made an unexpected big splash. And the book I'm referring to is this book by William Young um, called The Shack. I understand they made a movie out of this book. I did not see the movie. I don't know if you saw the movie. I don't know if you read the book, but I'm going to give you a very brief synopsis of the book. The protagonist of the book is a guy by the name of McKenzie called Mac. And Mac had been away on a camping trip with his family. And in a moment of inattention, when people were doing other things, their daughter wandered away, went to the lakeside, was captured by what turned out to be a serial killer. She was abducted and taken to the shack in the woods in the Pacific Northwest and murdered. And um, we meet Mac some time after this murder has happened. And of course, he is filled with um, incredible grief over the loss of his daughter. And he is also filled with murderous rage toward the person who committed this crime who has so far not been apprehended. So one week when Mac was alone at home, his wife had gone off to another city to attend a professional conference. I think she was a psychologist. Um, Mac walked out the house and up the icy driveway to check the mail, opened the mailbox, and in the mailbox there was a letter addressed to him, no stamp, no return envelope. And inside the, the envelope was a single sheet of paper that said, Mac, meet me at the shack. And it was signed, Papa. And Mac wondered what this was. Was it some sort of cruel joke? Was it an effort to lure another member of the family away so that another murder could take place? He had no clue. And he pondered for some time about what to do. And finally, he borrowed someone's four-wheel vehicle to make it over the rough terrain to get to the shack. He arrives at the location, which was an abandoned shack, as I said, in the Pacific Northwest. And when he walked through the clearing toward the shack, no longer was it abandoned. It was bright and colorful, and there were flowers growing around it. There was smoke coming out of the chimney, and there was the smell of the cooking food inside. Mac was lured in. He went into the shack, and there he found an ample, large, African-American woman wearing an apron, cooking in the kitchen, and she turns and says, Mac, you're just in time for dinner. And that was Papa. That was a stand-in in this novel for God. 
And later on, we will meet a character in the novel, if you read it, who is a stand-in for, stand for Jesus. And <clears throat> before the novel is over, Mac takes a boat, goes across the lake, goes into a cave, which Holly and I both have talked about as a metaphor, and has an encounter with another female whose name is Sophia, which is a stand-in for the Holy Spirit. And that is the best scene in the book to me because there is a real dirty showdown between Mac and the Holy Spirit about forgiveness. It's one of the best parts uh, in, in the book, highlighted the book for me. As I said, there's a movie made out of the book. I have not seen it. When that book was first published, it made quite a splash. It's a story that hits all the buttons, all right, about loss how we live in a world out of our control, how the task of each of us is coming to terms with what is. And it put a lot of mainstream Christian people in quite a quandary. Because here is a story that they loved, but this stand-in for God is black and female. At a Rohr conference, Richard Rohr mentioned this book, and he said that he read it and he got in touch with the author and said, this is the best explication of the Trinity I've ever read. Where did you get your ideas? And the author said, from you. <laughs> so there it is. If you haven't read it, it's an easy read. I recommend it to you. So <clears throat> it is my belief and experience that no white person in this country grows up without being racist. We can grow up being unaware that we're racist, but we are racist. And as a matter of fact, it's one of this country's foundation stones is white racism and patriarchy. So each week, Holly and I record a podcast that was her idea. The name of it is her idea, In Between, In Between, the two of us in between the no longer not yet in between Sundays in between and as you likely know I've spent three weeks in here talking about the grail story that story is about the developmental journey of a man who goes through the hero's journey from innocence to awareness and from uh, immaturity to maturity. It's a masculine story. It's written by a masculine. It's written by a man. The man who taught me the story, of course, is a masculine story. All the characters are male. So as we were talking about this in the podcast this week, we noted how most of our influential teachers are male. And though I have read and been influenced by many powerful female voices, I want to give you some, Barbara Brown Taylor, Pima Chodron, Judy Canada, Jan Phillips, Ilya Delio, Cindy Wogglesworth, Kathleen Singh, Joan Chittister, Karen Armstrong, Cynthia Bergeau, Holly Hudley, to name a few. <laughs> it remains a fact that most of my main teachers are men. 
And we can easily fall in the task of thinking that wholeness or integration involves women being able to participate in a male-created world. What we're ideally striving for is a world that is co-created by both feminine and masculine energy. At any rate, during the podcast, Holly said, it's much easier for a woman to walk in a man's shoes than for a man to walk in a woman's shoes. And what that made me think of was when in 1988, when Ann Richards, remember Ann Richards, was treasurer of the state of Texas, she gave the keynote address at the Democratic National Con Convention. And during the speech, she said, quote, but if you give us, meaning women, a chance, we can perform backwards and in high heels. <laughs> and she got a thunderous applause. By the way, that phrase backwards and in high heels, though it's been referred to as Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, actually first appeared in a cartoon strip called Frank and Ernest in 1982. So last week and today, we're trying to talk about integration and wholeness by using the heroine's journey, which is not a man's role to talk about. Um, you know, the, the, whole, the whole point of the heroine's journey is to integrate masculine with feminine. It's not to betray one or the other. It's to become whole in both. And, um, and I know last week I looked up at some point and I thought, I think I'm making y'all feel really sad. <laughs> and there was a lot of, yeah. But this is part of it, is that, you know, in a circle, you have to descend before you ascend, right? You have to go down before you go back up. You have to deconstruct. Yeah, yeah. So we're in that descent, right? It doesn't mean I want to make you feel sad all the time for the next eight weeks, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but we're in the descent, and that's the hard part, and I hope that we can just sort of be in it. Um, so it's hard, and it can be sad, and it can bring up feelings, and all of those are important to attend to. And as with the hero who also has to go into the dark cave, to do the heroine's journey, we also descend into the dark cave. There are, in that space, guides. And several of you felt compelled to share about amazing women you've had in your own life. And I hope <laughs> that the message I gave was not, oh, none of us have the right female uh, teachers or guides. I think I would like to hope that each of us has been lucky enough to have at least one. And those women are really large in my own life. My granny's one of them. My art teacher as a kid is one of them. Um, and it's not about denying the impact of the singular feminine or female in our lives. It's about when we go kind of into the world, that's not what's waiting for us. It's not usually this kind of open-armed masculine-feminine integration that's waiting for us. We, are, we enter into a, a, a masculine or male-dominated world. So we bring those guides and teachers along with us to help sustain us in that world. And in this way, we, I want to just elevate 
that they're there, that the female teachers are there, the ones that we needed, that we hopefully got. And um, these are the ones that we're kind of holding on our shoulders. I want to start with a poem instead of end with one that someone sent me last week, and it seemed like such an appropriate invocation. It's called The Prayers by Rosemary Watola Tromer. When I asked the world to open me, I did not know the price. When I wrote that two-word prayer in the sand, I did not know loss was the key. Devastation the hinge, trust was the dissolution of the idea of a door. When I asked the world to open me, I could never have said yes to what came next. Perhaps I imagined the waves knew only how to carry me. I did not imagine they would also pull me under. When I asked the world to open me, I had not imagined drowning was the best way to reach the shore. The waves of sorrow dragged me down with their tides of unthinkable loss. The currents emptied my pockets and stripped me of my ideas. I was rolled and eroded and washed up on the sand like driftwood softened. I sprawled there and wept, astonished to still be alive. It is not easy to continue to pray this way. Open me. And yet it is the truest prayer I know. The other truest prayer, though sometimes it frightens me, is thank you. That felt pretty appropriate just to open us to what is being asked. So we come through the, the heroine's journey. I talked last week about this sort of separation from the feminine. And the next phase of this, and I got into it a little bit, is the identification with the masculine and what uh, Maureen Murdoch called the gathering of allies. And I, I said last week, we, we need both male and female allies. We need a, our troops, so to speak. And almost simultaneous to the separation of the feminine, especially for Maureen Murdoch has this term she calls father's daughters, that we almost immediately upon that separation learn to kind of over-identify with the masculine. And father's daughters are those who may get a lot of care and love and nurturing and, and encouragement from the father, but the, the father also is in, in a masculine world, in a male world. So the, the daughter is taught to sort of participate in that world. And, and I said last week also, that's kind of like the, the gathering of our warrior selves. We learn how to stand and how to be in that world. And in spite of some of the successes of the ongoing women's movement, the prevailing myth is that certain people in, in our culture, it's namely white males, have more value than others. And those norms have become the standard for leadership and success. So many times the women, women's movement have been derailed just to try and figure out, as you said, how to fit into that paradigm. We, the, a lot of sort of the, the waves of feminism have tried to fit into the paradigm of what already exists. And there's deconstructing we need to do of that, right? Is this the paradigm that we need or is there a different paradigm available for us? It's not a wrong pursuit because our, 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 it teaches us how to operate in the world as it is. But it also helps expose our, our one-leggedness, that, that we're walking on one leg, that, which was the title last week. I found this statement so interesting in Maureen Murdoch's book. She says, a female may find a male mentor as, or guide, but they may have, at the same time, 
trouble taking orders from a man or accepting teaching for one. So there's a simultaneous longing to be accepted by the masculine culture as well as a kind of resistance to it. I will definitely say that's true for me. <laughs> and this, you know, we've got this beautiful man sitting next to us who is at the very least awake to. Did you hear that? Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Take note, Sherry. <laughs> who is at least awake to the <clears throat> wisdom of the feminine, that there is wisdom in the feminine, and seeking it and open to being changed by it. So that said, one of the things I often lament at this point in my life, I'm mid-40s is that I don't have a consistent, older, wiser female in, in my life. And that, there's, a, there's like a hole there in some ways. Um, it's a profound grief for me. And it forces me to reconcile in some ways with how I may have unwittingly rejected the feminine and make, wanting to make space. I jokingly, oh, I talked to um, Tom and Jerry Lynn last week. And I said, I'm taking applications. <laughs> if anyone wants to apply. No, I'm kidding. Um, kind of kidding. Um, but I said that uh, I conjure the image of my granny quite often. This is not my granny. <laughs> but I have her KitchenAid mixer that is at least 46 years old. And I, I have found that it's sort of a, a special thing to make kind of an altar or something that can honor these women in our lives, whether it's a photograph, whether it's a talisman, whether it's something you've inherited, just some way to honor the feminine in your life. Every single time I pull this KitchenAid mixer out, it's like a little shrine to my granny. And she was, she was the best person in our family. And she's in the room with me all the time. She, I think of her all the time. She was, just to expand on that a little, she was the first woman to graduate with a science degree from the University of Texas. And she was an artist, so she had this like creativity and this curiosity, this intellectual curiosity. And she became um, a widow pretty early. My grandfather died when uh, my dad was in his early 30s, I think. So she spent most, the, the next 40 years as a widow. And she died when I was in college. And the last thing I got to do before she died, and we didn't know she was dying, she literally got up, had a cup of coffee, sat down, and died which is exactly how I'd love to go. Um, but I cut her hair two weeks before she died, not knowing that that was coming. And it was a, it's a really special moment. So our alignment with the masculine, like anything, has both positives and negatives. Our seeking of the masculine helps us and hurts us. It teaches us to fight for something. I have a friend who says, fight where you stand. Find the thing you care about and fight where you stand. I think it's great advice. It teaches us to use our voices. It teaches us the strength of the intellect. So again, I think about my granny, who was the first woman to graduate from UT. You know, this, there's, there's, a, there's something there for me. Um, if we're fortunate to have fathers or mentors who accept us as we are, then we develop a positive relationship to the masculine. We have, we kind of can, create that inner male and create the space for that to occupy and support us in our journey. If one is absorbed by the masculine, what we might call a daddy's girl, and uh, there's a lot of pride that I've experienced in people saying, I'm a daddy's girl. And sometimes that daddy's girl can be infantilized, meaning like, 
I've got you, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. As, instead of challenging the young woman to maybe go out on her own or to, to stand up on her own two feet. Uh, this, this daddy's girl over image depreciates the mother. It, it says, I've got you, I'll protect you. We, we don't need the mother figure. Um, it kind of creates that damsel in distress sort of person. Um, I forgot about this slide, I'm sorry. I thought I was at the next one. So this is our, these are the kind of positives and negatives of the identification with the masculine. I had to poke it a few more times till it <laughs> finishes clearing out. But we ha a good example of that is the myth of Athena, who was literally born up out of Zeus's head. She just came out of Zeus's head and there was no mother. She's the goddess of war and there's no mention of the feminine in her, in her origin. So this idea that she just grew up fully armored and strong and by all means a, a, a heroine in, her, in and of herself, but straight up out of her father's head. Kind of interesting. <laughs> so our myths are masculine too. She, um, she's strong, bright, and ambitious, but the myths show that she has very little need for empathy, compassion, or vulnerability. She has to learn to stand in a man's world and how to fight in that world. Not a bad trait to have, but she never gets the softer side. So the challenge is to learn to hold our softer side in this context. We see it all the time how women are characterized and how, they're, how they behave in movies. And it's changing, and I want to honor that it is changing. I see a lot of variety in how the feminine is portrayed in, in, in the world today. But we are validated by belonging and behaving in a world that is validated by men. The flip side of this is, as I said, wanting to be rescued by the masculine. This kind of, um, what's the classic image of that early movie of the woman being tied to the railroad tracks and, right, what is that movie? And the man, that the mustachioed man is, yeah. So this damsel in distress is, help, help, help. And the man comes and rescues. Almost every Disney cartoon has a male rescuer, right? <laughs> it's very, it, and again, those are even changing. I'm noticing we still watch Disney cartoons in my house, that the, they're having stronger heroines, where she learns something, she goes through her own journey, learns something about her own self to sort of come through. But it's hard to recognize, nonetheless, that our femaleness has been defined by maleness. It's, again, this longing for new myths. The wisdom of Jesus clean, that really applies here when he is resurrected. And what does he say to the weeping Mary? He says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. You go and be you. You go out into the world and you share this love and compassion because you can do this too. He didn't say all of that. I'm inserting what he forgot to say or what the gospel writers forgot to say. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's an exhilarating and a terrifying command when someone says to you, don't cling to me, you do you. But that's the whole goal of individuation, is to try and walk on both legs in the world with the gift of the masculine and the gift of the feminine. We absolutely need powerful male allies who toe this line between encouragement 
and loving protection. We are so lucky if we get that. We're so lucky if we get both, the feminine and the masculine kind of holding us in this space. All of us are lucky if we get both. So it's important for the female or the feminine to know that she can survive without dependence on either parent so that she can discover this expression of her own heart, mind, and soul. I think that what's hopeful in this possibly fifth wave of feminism is a signal to the pervasiveness of the patriarchy. I think it feels like something stirring awake and maybe finally being listened to. It's always been there. There's always been an undertone of it. But I think it's, I'm hoping that it's becoming a louder stirring. So I have a riddle for you. You know this. I do. Some of you know it. If you know it, don't. Tell a person sitting next to you who doesn't know it. Here's the riddle. <clears throat> a father had taken his two children, a son and a daughter, for a ride in the country one day. As they're coming back into town, somebody runs a red light and slams into the side of the car. The father and the daughter are fine, but the son is injured seriously. Fortunately, the paramedics are there quickly. They get the boy put him uh, in an ambulance and rush him to the hospital. And on the way, they uh, radio ahead to the hospital and tell them that they have this very seriously injured young boy coming. So the trauma surgeon gets scrubbed and sanitized and gowned and is in the operating room waiting to receive the patient. So the ambulance arrives. They wheel the patient directly into the operating room. The doctor approaches and looks down and says, I can't operate on this boy. He's my son. How is that possible? The doctor is his mother. Oh, we don't think about that. I mean, even in our really enlightened thing, a lot of people don't think about that. I asked this riddle, to, I tested this riddle out a couple of times this week to see how it would play. And one person said, oh, it was a gay couple. <laughs> still a guy, still a guy for you on that. At the time, uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a joke that circulated, do you know that the women's movement, ha do you know the women's movement has no sense of humor? And the response was, no, but if you hum a few bars, I think I can improvise. So, uh, Misha Richter was, until his death in 2001, uh, one of the most frequent and best contributors of cartoons to The New Yorker. As you know, if you show up early, I love cartoons. It is one of the main reasons that I continue to take The New Yorker, yeah. because I get the cartoons and I scan the ones that I like and I put them up so that you can let so there was a cartoon that um, appeared in 1973. I cut it out. I saved it. I have had it all these years. I've never shown it in class. I think I've talked about it. But um, this is the cartoon. The pilot is saying, welcome aboard. This is your captain, Margaret Williamson speaking and all the business guys are looking oh my god there's a woman who's piloting the plane you might remember a few years ago a southwest uh, plane from boston to austin i think 
had an engine blow up, blew one of the windows out, one of the passengers was pulled out of the window. So the 737 um, did an emergency landing in Philadelphia. The woman of that plane was a pilot. Uh, by the way, she lives in Pearland. And she has an impeccable record as a marine jet pilot. But we, again, don't frequently think of women in roles that have been um, historically given to men. I am no freer from my inherent sexism than I am my racism. I can be aware of it, but it's there. It's in my DNA. And I am, however, so blessed, the word I use now is graced, by having this woman in my life as a primary nurturer and caretaker in the most formative years of my life. In Tennessee, where we grew up, we refer referred to African-American people as colored people. And the woman who fulfilled this job responsibility in our family as well as many others throughout the South was referred to as the help, okay? When my grandparents moved from Portland, Tennessee to Columbia, Tennessee, from north of Nashville to south of Nashville, the help moved with them. It took me years to realize what kind of indentured slavery that represented. Um, <clears throat> this is Ruth Harlan. Ruth Harlan was my nurturer, sustainer from ages six until I left for college. Um, I would rather go home after school and hang out with Ruth than go play with my friends because she had great stories to tell. She was a great cook. She taught me a lot about cooking. I loved her so much. I'm so grateful that when Sherry and I got together and I took Sherry to introduce her to my parents, Ruth was still alive and I got to introduce Sherry to her. When I would get in trouble as a kid, Ruth would say, I could hear Ruth say, now Miss Curly, don't you be hard on that boy. And until her death, um, I would call her almost every week to check on her and to see how she was doing. Near the end, she was in very poor health. She suffered from diabetes. I'm sure did not get good medical care. And we would talk about what was going on, what I was doing, what my kids were doing, that they got married, had a grandchild, all that sort of stuff. And we would end every conversation in the same way, the same ritual in every conversation. I would say, well, Ruth, I just wanted to call and check on you and see how you were doing, and I wanted to tell you how grateful I am that you've been part of my life and how much I love you. And she would respond with the same thing every time. She would say, well, I love you too, and like I always told your mama, you may be her son, but you're going to always be my boy. Having that kind of figure in my life has been a godsend for me. And so when 
in um, the late 50s, early 60s, I got involved in the civil rights movement in Tennessee, much to the consternation of my parents. How could it have been otherwise with this woman in my life? a lot of tensions to hold in, in that story. And that is a whole other unpacking <laughs> of how we um, bond with and seek wholeness in, in the ways that are given to us and how we also seek absolution from the culture that we're part of. Well, the cognitive and, dissonance in that story is just astounding because my father was a blatant racist. <laughs> he had a black woman living in his house charged with taking care of his kids. Huh? And we need to challenge that image, too. Yeah. That, that somehow the person being in service is responsible for our kind of, like, wokeness yeah. for our waking up. And that's a, it's, 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 it's a, something to challenge. Yeah. Right. Um, but <laughs> on the topic, um, before getting into this next bit, and this is kind of this journey between finding our allies, and what Maureen Murdoch calls fighting the ogres and dragons. There's lots of ogres and dragons to fight, but I want to share a story that is this a really <clears throat> wonderful, did you get a chance to watch this, or did you have it on? I haven't yet. It's, it's a documentary on ESPN+. Plus. I have a husband who's a huge sports fan. I'm a sports fan. I played soccer my whole life, so this story is, is dear to me. Um, I grew up admiring the first women to become professional soccer players, and they were who I wanted to be. I, there's a collective group of um, women who just got a collective bargaining agreement from the Women's Soccer League to get their contracts in order. There was a woman who was playing professional full-time soccer and being paid $6,000 a year. Unacceptable. Because the male counterpart, that there's, that's rent. <laughs> And the women's team is far better than the men's national team, yes. Um, one of my favorite players, this is not in my notes, but she, Abby Wambach, retired the same year as Kobe Bryant and Peyton Manning, both outstanding in their field. And um, Abby Wambach had, she has scored more goals, that record has been broken since her retirement, but she scored more goals in her soccer career than any other player, not female player, any other player. And they put all of their net worth up there. I'll let you do the rest. <laughs> she's, she's incredible. But anyways, in this, in this story, these women kind of gather together to fight these ogres and, demon, and dragons. For years, there's been a known problem in the Women's Soccer League around sexual harassment and abuse. And they, in this collective bargaining agreement, they had to have a clause in their contracts about not needing a harassment in the workplace. No man needs that clause in their contract, that we, can't, we shouldn't be harassed while we're at work. But they had to put it in their contract so that it would have legal standing. Um, in this ESPN documentary about it, this really powerful scene was when these women who who supported one another and said, what can I do to help? They came together, they sort of went to the powers that be, they sent emails, the, the five main perpetrators of this abuse and harassment got fired from the league, finally. But this happened in 
a game, the games are usually at the same time on the same days, either a Saturday or a Sunday. For women, it's usually a Saturday. And at the sixth minute of each game that was being played, the, each game stopped. So at the same time across the country, the game stopped at the sixth minute. And the women on each team gathered together in a circle. And they stood there, locked arm in arm, and just looked at each other and said, we got us. How powerful is that? They looked at one another, competing on the field. Somebody wanted to win. These are very fiercely competitive women. But they stood together arm in arm and said, we got us. Hmm. That's them using their warrior what they learned in a man's world to stand for each other. I was in tears too, watching this. How powerful would it be if the NFL stood together, stopped their game at the sixth minute on a Sunday and stood together in a circle and said, we're not gonna let this happen anymore. That would be men using their powerful feminine. And that, that doesn't happen because if it did, somebody would say they're gay. Or they'd pull their funding for the ads. You know, right. but how powerful would it be if the entire NFL on a Sunday at 12.06 p.m. stood in a circle together and said, we are not going to let our women suffer anymore. That would be the powerful feminine, binding with the powerful masculine and saying, we got us. I would love to see that happen. If any of you are a football player, <laughs> take it to the league. <laughs> so from Washington State to Houston, this happened in Houston with the Dash, to North Carolina, they stood together for a full minute, stopped their game, and just looked at each other. It is one of the most powerful symbols I can think of, and the, the symbol of a circle is not to be lost on us here. The circle is the journey we're on. So, confronting ogres and dragons. <laughs> there are our ogres and dragons. Um, at this point, the child has left the family home, and she's in the journey, this labyrinthian journey, to find the center of the self. And I love this line from Maureen Murdoch. She needs a lamp, a lot of thread, and her wits about her. We need to sew ourselves back together. We need to remember ourselves. The greatest obstruction to our journey is the dragon who says, you can be anything you want, but on my terms. Right? You can do it all, but oh, you're not quite doing it to my standards, so let me correct you. The, this leg of our journey tests the strength and independence of the inner self, and undoubtedly, self-doubt and fear arises. The inner world is battling all of the expectations of what it means to be a woman in this society, in this world, that is reinforced in so many subtle ways. And you know, it's also that our families are trying to carve a path I know that my family tried to carve a path for me as a woman, and I was more or less supported in doing whatever I wanted to do and on somebody else's terms. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's hard not to succumb to this myth of feminine inferiority. If I just act like that, maybe I'll be accepted in this world. We may even sit in that place of inferiority for a long while. Another thing that arises in this leg is, this, is an awareness of needs. 
we are, as women, so rarely taught to take care of our own needs. I will be the first to admit I have a really hard time asking for help. It's hard because I've, I've so been trained up to be the helper, to be the caregiver. When I became a mother, my beloved art teacher, who I briefly mentioned, she was a major influence in my life, said, welcome to the world of, no, really, it's fine. Everyone else get in the car. I'll just run along behind. <laughs> <laughs> So, and again, I do see that that is changing. We're dealing with a lot of tensions, and, and there are so many admirable women and men sitting in this room who wouldn't abide by that. And yet, that is the dominant culture that we walk into. So even if it's not true for us, it is reinforced by the world that we live in. As intellectually capable as I feel or uh, that I, I well-read, I, I, love, I love learning, I am very quick to give up my voice in the presence of a dominant man, to laugh and go, oh, you're, you're right, or whatever I do that is habituated in me. And it takes a real force of the will to say, no, don't giggle, don't do it, don't demean yourself, right? It's a major growth edge for me. I don't know if anyone else relates to that, but it's easy for me to give my power over when someone is, seems dominant to me. Yeah, that could be a woman, too. That's not, just, that's not just a male thing. And I know this is taboo to talk about in church. We're going to talk about sex. Um, <laughs> and the irony is not lost on me that the Christian mythology around the fall of Eve contributes to this, but we are taught so much shame and denial of uh, our own sexual needs. And this is so confusing to be sort of brought up in a culture that says, wear your lipstick, look pretty, and dress the part, but don't be too pretty, <laughs> you know? Because if you are, you kind of got what's coming to you. And we still live in that world. And, and, and that's, it's terrifying for women. I've walked alongside so many young girls who are afraid to come out about rape allegations because they're afraid they're the ones who are gonna get in trouble and our world has shown them that they're right that they get dragged as opposed to this accountability for, for toxic patriarchy. It's not just confusing, it's absurd. So there's an interesting fact that I read over the last couple weeks that, did you know that 85% of women's clothing all the way down to our undergarments and shoes are still mostly designed by men? 85%, yeah. I mean, for the most part, they're doing a pretty good job, but I also go, of course a man came up with that. <laughs> so, but um, anyways, I, I, thongs, that's what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm not kidding. I better shut up. Um, um, anyways, um, <laughs> somehow we become the guardians of male desire rather than our own. And we've been taught so often, and again, I don't know how, this is, how many of you this is true for, that we're the gatekeepers. We're the ones that prevent the, the bad from happening to us as opposed to getting to stand in our own sexual power and to use it well. You know, So it's a really confusing message. There's nobody in this room who's devoid of sexual urges, women included, but we've been taught that we shouldn't have them, that we have to safeguard against them. So we're still in the descent. But I hope you can also see that in this descent, we're gathering strength. 
we're gathering that circle of women standing arm in arm together and saying, <clears throat> it can be different. We can stand with each other and for each other, and we can, we can do it differently. There is a, in the book that we both read, She, there's um, the myth of Psyche and Eros, which is the story of Cupid and his lover, Psyche, and how the Aphrodite, um, the, mother, the mother-in-law, tries to kind of sabotage this relationship. That myth is really relevant here, and I'd encourage you to read it, because Psyche literally has to go into the underworld and fight ogres and dragons to sort of stand for what she wants. She's given all these absurd tasks by the mother-in-law. And Psyche is in this position of saying, of, of kind of knocking the traditional off of its pedestal and say, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it differently than you might teach me to. And she has to come to her own strength. And then she starts the ascent. So she does it, spoiler alert. She accomplishes the, the goals. And in this process, I had this, I, I took a course recently called um, uh, Spiritual Psychology, and it was taught by a woman, a woman who has this whole process of becoming the grail. And I want to offer you one of the teachings. It was a really beautiful, beautiful image for me. So when we talk about the grail, we think it's something that we have to go find, right? <clears throat> we think that it's an object that needs our, 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 our grasping. And when we reframe it this way, that we are the grail, we are the grail, what we are looking for is already here, then this image might make more sense. So we've got this grail. And in the center of that grail, at the base of the, of the cup, is, is the hero or the heroine. Okay? And on our left shoulder, we've got this warrior or warrioress. And on our right shoulder, we've got the queen or the king. And very often in our society, we're taught that the warrior and the king or the queen faces outward, fights against, stands for. But this woman who taught this class said, no, no, we need to turn them inward. And they're here going to us, what is it that you need? What is it that you need for me to stand up for? And they pour into us, this queen or king on one side and the warrior or warrioress on the other side, pour into us our strength and our compassion, our fierceness and our love. We need both. We absolutely need both. So we have this idea, and I love this as a meditation, imagining the little warrior or warrioress or the king or queen on our shoulders and just asking them to turn towards us and say, pour into me justice, discrimination or discernment and discipline and mercy, love and compassion. If we can visualize this, these little figures on each shoulder and allow them to pour into you, we will be armed with the beauty, the goodness and the love for this next leg of the journey. So I hope those of you who are here and those of you who are watching are aware that you've just heard a really good teaching. And it's not something that a guy could do. So I'm, I began today, we began today by mentioning the book, The Shack. And in The Shack, 
the stand-in for God is an ample black female figure, motherly figure. And um, if it, I, I'm more and more inclined now <clears throat> to talk some about spiritual practice next Sunday, but icons and art are a good way to get into spiritual practice. And uh, you might have an image of a black motherly female figure as your understanding of the sacred. Um, you might give that a try. That image is not new with William Franklin, William Young. In the late third century, the evolving Jesus movement came up with the understanding of Mary as the mother of God. We have this whole tradition in the Christian tradition of the Black Madonna, which we can talk more about. Carl Jung thought that the um, evolution of, in addition to Roman Catholic theology of the assumption of Mary, was actually something that completed the instability of Christian theology as reflected in the Trinity. Three is an unstable number. So by completing that number with the assumption of Mary, uh, Jung thought that that addresses something that was not helpful in, in Christian theology. So why not the image of God as a black female? I mean, the image of God as a white dude has not done us good. <laughs> not served us well. So a few years ago, we attended a conference. Uh, you all were there, I know, put on by Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. And that's where uh, I met uh, this woman the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, uh, and at one point in the program during a break where she was signing books, I walked up to her, uh, got in line, I walked up to her and I said, I didn't stand here for you to sign my book. I want you to look at this. I want you to remember my face because when I get back to Houston, I'm going to call you and get you to come to Houston to do a program with us. And she agreed to do that. And then COVID. But she still yeah. came. So she, could, <laughs> she didn't come in person. So we did have a, a webinar of sorts with her. She is a powerful woman. She's awesome. Really forceful and creative. And she said some things at the Royal Conference that actually got under people's skin. Now that's a good thing. I don't want to make people uncomfortable. That's not in my best interest. But discomfort is a good teacher. It can let you know where you need to do some growing. So she spoke on racial and gender inequity at the conference. And um, I think it's more than time for us to reimagine both our image of God and what informs us on the journey of making the already sacred sacred. So I'm going to invite you now to open your hearts, and I want you to listen to what Jackie Lewis said at that conference. These are her words. So <clears throat> if it ticks you off, it's not me that's saying it. Oh, Lord. I'm, I'm escaping. <laughs> It's me that chose oh, to say it. Just kidding. No. 
Dr. Jackie Lewis said, it makes sense that because white men created so much religion, the image of God was an old white man with gray hair. However, this image needs a makeover because he's no longer working. My God is a curvy black woman with dreadlocks and dark cocoa brown skin. She laughs from her belly and is unashamed to cry. She can rock a whole world to sleep, singing in her contralto voice. Her sighs breathe life into humanity. Her heartbreaks cause eruptions of justice and love. Of course, because God is a mystery, we don't know everything about her. So out of our imaginations and our yearnings, our hopes and our fears, we make stuff up. At our best, we project goodness, power, kindness, and love onto God. At our worst, we create a God who is punitive, angry, judgmental, and harsh. We do this because we are these things, and we think they make us safe. Projection itself is not the problem. The problem occurs when we don't examine those projections with a critical eye, with a hermeneutic of suspicion. The issue is that we write laws that codify the shadow parts of the God we create in order to diminish others, to abuse others. The trouble starts when our God is too small, when we reduce our worst projections to fit in our pocket and keep God on our team. When we neglect to confront this created God, we get the Crusades and the doctrine of discovery, the murder of indigenous people and Jews, apartheid and enslaved Africans, sexism, xenophobia, and homophobia, all in the name of a too puny God who is the worst of ourselves. I know I got my projections. They're inspired by my imagination and by textual studies. In Hebrew, the words for womb and mercy have the same root, and the word for spirit is feminine. In Greek, the word pneuma, breath or spirit or soul, has a feminine article. The word Sophia stands for wisdom, and the word agape, God's love for us, is also a feminine word. Therefore, my God is an incarnate feminine power who smells like vanilla and is full of sass and truth, delivered with kindness. She'll do anything for her creation. Her love is fierce. She weeps when we do, and she insists on justice. She is God. She is love. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step. Step aside for 10 minutes, and then we're going to join for lunch. Please stay. There's no charge and uh, no telling what will happen. <laughs>